you would turn to Philippians, Philippians 2, reading a passage that, will be, that is, should be familiar to us since we read through it last week, and that's Philippians 2, 5 to 11, kind of taking an aside this morning to focus on the person of Christ. So Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and later on this sermon, so really working with two sets of passages, Philippians 2, and then later Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 17. So the words will be up on the screen, but it is helpful, I think, to have the passage open and follow along with me. So Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Lord, we... We come before you this morning and we ask that you may open our minds to understand your word. Help us to focus our minds on the person of Christ. That you may increase our affection for Christ. That you may increase our gratitude for the person and work of Christ on our behalf. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, as we were going through the book of Philippians, we covered this passage, and there's a lot of background that really helps to inform the meaning of this passage, right, from the occasion of the letter, the purpose of the letter, the culture of the audience who received the letter, but historically, throughout church history, this has been a pretty significant passage in helping the church to understand the person of Christ. Now, since the early church, our understanding, or the church's understanding of the, go- of the gospel, but specifically the person of Christ, has kind of swung like a pendulum, right, in reading the gospels, many have fully embraced the, the full humanity of Jesus Christ, but not the divinity. And then after the ascension of Christ in the early church, the early church embraced the full divinity of Jesus Christ. It was during that time, during the early church, that then, that then new theologies began to emerge. For example, Gnosticism, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but Gnosticism was kind of a, a persistent threat to the church and Gnosticism did not embrace the full divinity of Christ. 
And so that pendulum continues to swing to this day. And I want to argue that we need to understand the full person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is fully God and at the same time fully man, because if you don't understand that, if you don't embrace that, then you essentially lose the gospel. Because if you swing too far to one direction, embracing perhaps the full humanity, but not the full divinity, or if you swing the other direction, embrace the full divinity and not the full humanity, then you're really losing out, you're losing the gospel. And so, I want to take you through this passage, though it's not, its original intention is not to give us a in-depth explanation on the person of Christ. It does have a lot to teach us about the person of Christ, so I hope to kind of walk us through this passage as an attempt to defend the full humanity and divinity of Christ, to show you how it's necessary, and then conclude with why does this matter, or why should this matter to you? So, the humanity and divinity of Christ. So, verse 5 tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then, later in verse 7, tells us that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. So first, the passage tells us that Jesus was in the form of God or had the likeness of God. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is not to be confused with idols, right? Because idols today and back then and in the Old Testament, idols were visible imagers or visible representations of gods that people worshipped. But that's not the idea here in Philippians or in the passage in Colossians where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Because images or idols were intended to be objects of worship, adoration, affection. And Jesus is not an idol that seeks to bring worship of God to himself or curve the worship of God and bring it to himself. But the New Testament tells us that to worship Jesus is to worship God because Jesus is God. But another significant difference between idols and Jesus being in the image of God is that idols are created by human hands and Jesus is uncreated. Jesus is the divine God, is what the passage communicates when it tells us that Jesus is in the form of God. Jesus says in the, in the Gospels that he is the I am, the divine name of God himself. John 14, 8, one of his disciples, Philip, asked him, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus is astounded by his question. He says, how can you ask that? To see me is to see the Father. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus. You need to know, right? And you know that that is Jesus as you continue to read through the first chapter of the Gospel of John. The Word who is Jesus is God. Right, something that Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, don't affirm. They say that Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They insert an indirect object there that wasn't even there in the original language. Just essentially affirming that there's two gods. But that would have been unthinkable to a Jew like the Apostle John, because the 
Apostle John grew up on the Shema, which is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it makes no sense that the Apostle John, who affirmed the Shema, would write that there's a second God or another God. The Apostle Thomas wasn't there at first when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to his disciples. And when his, disciples and the, his fellow disciples told him that they'd seen Jesus, he said, I won't believe unless I see him and touch him. And then later on, Jesus appears and, Philip is, and Thomas is there and he beholds Jesus. He touches the hands where the nails were pierced in Jesus' hands. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. Titus 2.13 this is that we await the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So all these things point us to the fact that Jesus is fully divine, that Jesus is God. But Philippians 2 also tells us that Jesus was born in the likeness of man. But at the same time affirming his full humanity, so Jesus is fully God, and the fact that it's speaking to his likeness, which I take it to be synonymous to being in the form which he uses late, earlier, talking about the form of God. So Jesus in the form of God, meaning likeness of God, Jesus is also in the likeness of man, or in the form of man. Not just in a, an appearance, Jesus wasn't putting on a costume that made him look like a human being, but he became actually fully 100% human. The passage in Philippians, nothing in it indicates to us that he became anything but 100% man. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus ate, he drank, he grew tired, he even took naps. Jesus felt pain, Jesus suffered, agonized, and Jesus died. Another section of passages that really affirm the humanity of Jesus Christ is in the temptations themselves. Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days, and he says he became hungry. And then the devil enters the picture, which, by the way, doesn't remind you of a similar story. The same thing happened long ago in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. The serpent enters into the picture, seeks to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. He's successful. And here is Jesus, the second Adam, being tempted by the devil. The only difference is that he succeeds and he doesn't give in to the temptation. If you're the son of God, turn these, this bread into stone. Feed yourself. You're hungry. If you're the son of God, cast yourself over this cliff because the word of God tells you that you'll be, bared, you'll, be, you'll be brought up, you'll be carried up by angels. Let me show you the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, and I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus denies every single time the fact that Jesus felt an experience and endured temptation points to the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Because the word tells us that God, and Jesus is God, that God cannot be tempted by evil. And here is the tempter tempting Jesus to commit evil. But if Jesus was only divine, he could not be tempted. But the fact that he was tempted points to his full humanity. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 2 John 7, 
tells us that there are deceivers in the world, and that's definitely true today. There are deceivers in the world who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh, speaking about the denial of his humanity. So Jesus is in the likeness of God and also in the likeness of man. And we see also his full humanity and full divinity in his position. Again, in verse 6, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then it tells us later in verse 7 that Jesus took the form of a servant. So Jesus, it tells us, the assumption is that Jesus was equal with God. Same status, same authority, same absolute sovereignty over all things. There is no human authority greater than the authority of Jesus Christ. And he had the, the privileges that come with such authority. Jesus himself knew this when he says that, that when he understood and knew that the God the Father had given all things into his hands. John 13, 3. John 17, 2 says that since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given. This is the authority that God gives to the Son. Jesus has absolute authority right, on par with God himself. Jesus was equal with God. Hence why when he calmed the storm, when he was his disciples on the sea, the disciples say, who is this that even the seas and the wind obey him? We see his authority when Jesus calls out the legion of demons to come out of a man, and the demons themselves ask to be allowed to enter a herd of pigs. And Jesus did not see that equality with God as something to be exploited, something to be used for his own purposes. But instead, he moves in a certain direction because of the equality he has with God. He begins with the position of being equal with God, and he moves towards others, towards becoming a servant. So in addition to dressing himself with humanity, he also dressed himself with the apron of a servant. He didn't use his rights or his privileges for his own gain or his own advantage. Jesus was willing to take himself of a position of being an absolute and complete authority and put himself in a, posi a position of being under, uh, of, of subjection, of obedience. Being in a position of obedience under God. Obedience under earthly parents, obedience under the Roman Empire, obedience even under a fair trial, unfair trial. And something remarkable that we learn from Jesus' trajectory from equality with God to becoming a servant. Something wonderful that we glean from this passage is, is that we get to see into the heart of deity. We get to see into the heart of Christ. And what we learn about the heart of Christ is that his very impulse is to serve. His equality with God, his supremacy, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence wasn't used for something for his own advantage. He didn't use it as something to perhaps try to surpass God. 
But what it tells us about the very heart of Jesus Christ is that he desires to serve. To come down and be a servant of sinners. Right? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been born again by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that also should be your inclination and my inclination as well. To serve. Another way in which we see the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ is through his rank. Again, in verse 7, it tells us that Jesus emptied himself. Then later in verse 10, it tells us the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So Jesus emptied himself. The NIV reads that Jesus made himself as nothing. Now we need to reject that this is Jesus emptying himself of his divinity. Jesus did not become less divine and more human. But what we see is that this sort of this, this subtraction by addition. Jesus emptied himself by adding to himself a human form. By taking the form of a servant. And we saw last week that this emptying himself really speaks to his rank. Right, because the culture at the time valued these prestigious positions, pursuing these prestigious ranks. And it tells us that Jesus, in a prestigious rank, a rank that it cannot be surpassed by any other human being, by any other human institution, lowers his own rank. And the Son of Man, speaking to his divinity, the Son of Man came not to be served, which was his right, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But then we see his returning to his exalted position. He once subjected himself and then he is elevated or he is restored to his prestigious position that he once had before. Not necessarily because he earned it, though he certainly did, but because it is his by right. It is his by his very nature. It is his because he is the son of God. It's like now he rules as Savior. And a final way that we see the, the vanity and the humanity of Jesus Christ is through the dignity. Jesus' personal dignity. It tells us in verse 8 that Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then towards the end, and then every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the humanity of Jesus Christ is affirmed in his humiliation even to the point of crucifixion. Jesus was once equal with God, it tells us, sharing in the same dignity. And then he lowers his own dignity to experience the pinnacle of human humiliation. And that is through crucifixion on a cross even subjected himself to death while at the same time maintaining his divinity. One author, Donald McLeod, wrote, Never once 
does Jesus, in his own interest or in his own defense, break beyond the parameters of humanity? He had no place to lay his head, but he never built himself a house. He was thirsty, but provided for himself no drink. He was assaulted by the powers of hell, but he did not call on his, on his legion of angels. Even when he saw the full cost of his emptying, he asked for no rewriting of the script. He bore the sin in his own body with sorrow in his human soul and redeemed the church with his human blood. The power which carried the world, stilled the tempest, and raised the dead was never used to make his own conditions of service easier. Neither was, he, was the prestige he enjoyed in heaven exploited to relax the rules of engagement. Deploying no resources beyond those of his spirit-filled humanness, he faced the foe as flesh and triumphed as man. Donald McLeod isn't saying that Jesus decreased his divinity and increased his humanity, but it tells us, he's telling us that Jesus was fully divine and fully man, and yet, as he suffered agonizingly on the cross, when he could have called the legion of angels to save him, he didn't. How's that for temptation? Right, if it was us, if you and I had the power in his shoes to call on a legion of angels to rescue us as we're dying on the cross, we would have caved in. I would have said, save me, come save me, angels. But Jesus did not do so. Jesus Christ, the God-man, died for sinners. And it's important that we embrace both his full humanity and full divinity. So he brought himself low, even to the point of death, on a cross. And then he's exalted, given the position of greatest honor. He's made a name for himself. He's gained a reputation for himself. He's the son of God, but now he has the reputation as savior. And it is that name as Lord and Savior that every tongue will confess. And so scriptures affirm both natures in one person. And we have to affirm both if we're going to understand the work of Christ and what that accomplishes for us. And so that's what I turn to now. The work of Christ. What does the work of Christ accomplish for us? What, if, if, what does the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus Christ in one person and then that work that comes out of his person, what does that accomplish for us? And to that I turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. It's not the only place where we see the work of Christ on our behalf and what that accomplishes for us, but it is a good place to turn to. Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 9. What does the work of Christ accomplish for us? It accomplishes the glorification of man. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Before that, the author speaks of Jesus lowering himself, even lowering himself to a position that is even beneath angels. Speaking about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And that humiliation includes, of course, his humanity. And Jesus did this, became human, lowered himself to become like one of us in order to bring us to what God originally intended for us. And that is to be without sin. And so Jesus must be fully human in order to endure the pain and the agony of the cross. Because even if he was just a little bit more divine and a little less human, that would have made the cross that much more bearable. And then he would not be called our brother. Then he would not be our savior. But no, if he's going to save us, he must do so as a man, fully man. In order that we may be glorified. And he must be fully divine at the same time. Because if it was just a human being, if Jesus was just a human being who died on the cross, he'd stay dead and you and I would still be in our sins. It would accomplish nothing. But we needed somebody who was like us, but could also beat death. Which brings me to the second way that the work of Christ, or the second accomplishment of the work of Christ the work of Christ accomplishes for us our glorification. And secondly, and this was really good, the work of Christ destroys the work of the devil. The word destroy doesn't, it, it, normally it's, it's a bad thing. The word destroy is it's not a very good word, but in this context, I love the word destroy. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is us, he, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, became human himself, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus became fully man in order to taste death for us. Right? Because you and I, as human beings, as sinful human beings, we are subject the power of death, and also to the power of the devil. The scriptures tell us that, that the devil is the God of this world. And so if Jesus is to accomplish our redemption, then he be, must become like man, and, he, and that means that he must subject himself to death itself. And the only way that you can beat death is by rising from the dead. And Jesus did that. He died because he was human, but he also rose again from the dead because he is also fully divine. And that through his work on the cross, through his conquering death, that means that for you and me that we need not fear death. It means that even though you and I die, we will live again. That we will live eternally with God. That we need not fear what comes after death because Jesus assures us of what comes after death for you and I who believe in Christ, and that is eternal life. 
with God. And so that is what the work of Christ accomplishes for us. And if he's not fully human, if he's, or if he's not fully divine, then death is still our taskmaster. And so is the devil. Thirdly, what the work of Christ accomplishes for us is that it makes Jesus our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 2.16 For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is you and me, through faith. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. The passage affirms that Jesus was made like us in every respect, that he was like us, exactly like you and I are. The scriptures also affirm to us in the letter of Peter that Jesus is like us but without sin, which goes to teach us that sin is not intrinsic to the human identity. To be human does not necessarily mean to be a sinner. I mean, Adam and Eve were human beings created without sin. Jesus was fully human without sin, showing us God's original intention for you and I, and that is to be without sin. But he is like us in every other way, and that makes him a faithful high priest who intercedes on our behalf because he knows our trials, he knows our pain, he knows our agony, he knows our suffering, he even knows our temptation. But he is fully divine, which we see because he is offering this, this priestly service before God. He's there in the throne of grace, standing before the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. No one else can stand before the presence of God and live unless they are fully divine. And Jesus is fully divine, interceding on our behalf. The work of Christ, lastly, makes propitiation. Hebrews 2.17. Again, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century, had asked a really profound question, a question that's really stood the test of time, even to today. And that question was, why did God become man? And the answer was to make satisfaction. Essentially what propitiation means. Because you see, there's been this nagging, this persistent, this penetrating, this even this painful problem that we read in the scriptures. And that is the problem of forgiveness. Because if a holy and just and you have a righteous God and you also have man who is sinful, whose heart is bent inwards, does not want to follow God, does not want to honor God, does not want to please God. 
And so you have this problem in the middle of forgiveness. How can God and man be reconciled? Because God is just, because God is holy, and his justice, his justice and his righteousness demands that he punish the guilty. Right, that's what you would expect from a righteous and impartial judge to render a just verdict upon a criminal. But the scriptures also teach us that God is love. We read in the passage in Philippians that the heart of the deity, is, its inclination is to serve. But how can a holy and just and righteous God reconcile sinners? How can he forgive them while also maintaining his holiness and his righteousness at the same time? And the scriptures teach us that the answer is found in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the problem of forgiveness. He answers the problem of forgiveness by reconciling God and man together, by standing in man's place and receiving the just punishment that man deserves for his sins and rose again from the dead so that anybody who places their faith and trust upon Christ receives forgiveness, receives the righteous account of Jesus credited to their account and spared of the righteous judgment of God. So that God, so that Jesus absorbs the full penalty that our sins deserve as a man, and yet at the same time, because he is fully human, he can come out at the other side of it and still survive. Not just survive, but be resurrected, be fully alive, and ascend to the right hand of God. Jesus is the one that resolves this tension. So we needed a Savior that is like us, and yet at the same time not like us. And that is what the work of Christ accomplishes for us. and makes propitiation and reconciles God and man together, while still showing that God is love, that God desires to serve, but also preserving his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. Lastly, why does this matter? Why should this matter to you? Well, one reason is the gospel. Right, this matters because of the gospel. This matters, firstly, because of the current state of theology. Ligonier Ministries does a, a research, a polling And last year they did that, and they came to the conclusion based on results that one-third of Christians do not believe that Jesus is God. One-third of Christians do not believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe in the full divinity of Jesus Christ. That's astounding. That would mean that one out of three of you do not believe in the full divinity of Jesus Christ, if that's true. And so this matters. Embracing the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ matters for the sake of the gospel. Because if you don't embrace, if you don't believe in the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ, then you don't essentially believe in the gospel. It matters because there are many heretics out there in the world, popular heretics promoting a false theology. 
Bill Johnson of Bethel Ministries, a popular ministry, for example, believes in the kenosis theory, meaning that Christ emptied himself all of, of his divinity and only endured and did all that he did as a spirit-filled man. It sounds good, sounds plausible, but it is wrong. No, Jesus is fully God and not just a spirit-filled man. Prosperity preachers like T.D. Jakes denies the Trinity. Joel Osteen doesn't believe in the full person of Jesus Christ. Steve Furtick of Elevation Church does not believe in the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Maybe the reason why one-third of Christians do not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ is because there are many false teachers who draw thousands of people every single week teaching a false theology, a false gospel. So no, this matters because of the gospel. The Bible tells us that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We stand in the truth, we defend the truth, and we promote the truth. There are a lot of false religions in the world. And Mormons deny the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is created. I mentioned earlier Gnosticism, an early a, a, a heresy in the early church that believed that, that salvation comes through receiving a divine knowledge from heaven. Well, that's wrong. They also believed that everything in the material world, that even what happens in the body doesn't essentially matter. That what matters is your soul, that your soul was, is what's going to go on to eternity. So what you do outside of your soul doesn't really matter. An early church heresy, but its influence is still alive today. You see it in television. You see it in social media. Taught in schools. Heard from many, by many leaders in the country. We see this influence. So our culture teaches that, that one's identity doesn't matter. You can identify yourself in whatever way you want. It can be whatever gender you want. That you can do whatever you want. Essentially, what matters is what's inside. How you feel. What matters is what you think. What matters is really inside and outside doesn't really matter. That's Gnosticism. There's nothing new under the sun. What we read in the New Testament is that the body does matter. Jesus took on a full human body and was without sin. Jesus died on the cross with a human body. Jesus rose from the dead with a human body. And also, the gospel promises us that we will be resurrected and we will come into a state without sin, a state of not even wanting to sin, and also having a glorified body. No, the body matters a great deal to the Bible. This matters because of your worship. When we understand the person of Christ, who he is, that we can better understand the sacrifice that it took to purchase our salvation. 
to see the one who is full of dignity, who has the highest rank, who is fully divine, has absolute authority, come into this position of subjection, even to the point of death on the cross, we can better appreciate the lengths that Jesus took in order to save you and me from our sins. It shows the strength of God's pursuit of you. The depth of Christ's humiliation to the point of death should compel us as Christians to be humble, to be more than willing to put the needs of others before ourselves because that's what we see Christ do. It gives us this heart where we are more than willing to count others more significant than ourselves. And yet many Christians are not even willing to go to church. But understanding the full person of Jesus Christ and the work that's come out of his person changes the heart. And lastly, should cause us to worship. We have an understanding, we have appreciation of the person of Christ, then that should naturally result in a desire to adore the Lord Jesus, to worship him, to praise him, to give honor to him because of who he is and also because of what he has done. The work of Christ on our behalf is only effective if he is fully God and at the same time fully man. So then let us embrace this doctrine with our whole hearts. Because it doesn't just matter for our heads, for our own knowledge, but it matters for our very lives as well. It changes us. And so let's embrace both. Come together in the one person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are our great King and Savior. Lord, and we want to worship you and praise you because of who you are and all that you have done for us. You are the God-man. You are the one who has reconciled us to our heavenly creator. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe what your word says about who you are. Help us to understand why this matters. Help us to grow in a greater appreciation, greater gratitude because of what you've done for us because of all that you have sacrificed in order to take on our humanity, in order to absorb for us the righteous judgment of God. We praise you and we thank you, Jesus. And may this humble us and cause our hearts to be filled with an inclination to serve one another just as we see in your sacrifice. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.